Apple unveiled their new iPhone, the iPhone 12. Last year, around this time, they released the iPhone 11. And it makes you wonder what these guys are planning next. What, the iPhone 13? You know? <laughs> Uh, and it's so silly, but so funny. And they announced they announced a mini, so they're going to bring back the small iPhone, like the original iPhones. I'm very excited about that. I will. Buy, this will be the first iPhone I bought when it right when it comes out in years. I'll get this one hot off the press. Well, I've seen the iPhone you're using now. I approve of that investment. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Screens cracked. The battery doesn't work. A lot of the touch areas don't work. Um, we're uh, we're a little fired up. Got to got to point out that I, I'm having trouble concentrating on what we were going to do because we just got news that in our local area, the county has outlawed Christmas lights. <laughs> That's right, because some streets have uh, elaborate light displays that tend to draw people to look at them. Therefore, we have we have forbidden Christmas light displays because of the COVID nineteen. Now, so I just saw Beverly Hills has officially banned Halloween, um, which they're doing in some parts of the country, which blows my mind. I don't know how the government thinks they get to say you're not allowed to walk to your neighbor's house and knock on the door, even if they're welcoming you by having the light on, like saying, come over to our house. You're healthy. They're healthy. You're not the least bit concerned about your kids. The government can say I can't walk to my neighbor's house and knock on the door. That's a, that's a line we shouldn't cross. Well, it's a health emergency, Jack, for but, seven months and counting, including where it's not an emergency. But at least I understand kind of the premise in that we're out and about and I'm going up to my neighbor's house. I spread the disease. At least I understand the premise, even though I think it's wildly out of bounds. Okay. I, I don't even understand the premise of canceling the Christmas lights. Well, lots I'm of gonna, people wander over and stand on the sidewalks. I'm going to drive down the street in my car and look at the Christmas well, lights. Some people might be on foot. It could be a super spreader event. We're going to tell you where you can walk and where you can't walk and how you celebrate the birth of Christ and how you don't. Here's what you do. One guy in the county made this declaration. You, tell know, you, what. you know how you get around it. You put on some uh, activist T-shirts and smash some windows. Yes. Then you can walk anywhere you want. Exactly. If you bust up the houses that are celebrating the birth of Christ and or just like bright lights. In the name of equality. Right, right. Just say something, something, black lives. And then you get to smash stuff up and you get to assemble. Something, something, rich people, something, something, patriarchy. And And you can actually smash the windows of the house and then look at the Christmas lights. Um. Yeah, it's uh, beyond maddening. It's the stuff that makes people break the law. And honestly, and, uh, you know, if this is the end of our career, fine. Uh, Break the law. Take your kids trick-or-treating. If you think it's safe, if you take reasonable precautions, your neighbor's lights are on, indicating clearly they are welcoming trick-or-treaters, do it. Put up your Christmas lights. There's one specific court not far from the radio ranch that was forbidden for doing their lights. We've told them, we will take care of your legal defense. We will raise money for your legal defense. Oh, I know that we could raise six (laughs) figures if we had to. In a day, in a Uh, minute, in an hour. It'd be easy. So, yeah, yeah, put up your lights. um, It's the history of mankind. You give people a little bit of power and they abuse it, but... How do you not realize you're you're going to raise a generation of people with n- no respect for the law or government? Right. My kids are are coming up in a world where the government does such crazy things that's crazy even to them as children. They understand how dumb it is. And that is true. They're not going to have respect for the law the way I did as a kid. Yeah. There are two ways that this sort of thing can go. One toward 
uh, sheep-like subservience, compliance, um, you know, the sort of slavish, head-down obedience that is repugnant to any American of good conscience, or lawlessness. Those are the two places that this sort of overreach can, can take you. That's ah, maddening. I'm sure your wheels are already spinning on this, Executive Producer Hanson, but we got to get out a press release. we got to get in contact with the neighborhood. we got to make it clear to everyone we'll ha- happily pay the legal bills for if you want to put your Christmas lights up. Yep. Yep. We will start a fund uh, on a, a more cheerful topic, just very briefly. Uh, today is indeed the anniversary of uh, humankind breaking the speed of sound for the first time. The great Chuck Yeager. Uh, I've lost the date. When was it? Uh, 47, Seven, I think it was. Hell of a long time ago. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Anyway, uh, interestingly, two days before the mission that was scheduled, Chuck Yeager fell off a horse and broke two ribs. But he was worried that the injury would remove him from the mission, and so he snuck to a civilian doctor who taped up his ribs. He only told his wife... And his uh, co-pilot, Jack Ridley, about the accident. Is On the it, day of the flight, he was in such pain, he couldn't seal the hatch by himself. Um, so uh, Ridley, his good friend, rigged up a device using the end of a broom handle as an extra lever to allow Jaeger to seal the hatch. Is that the opening of The Right Stuff, or was it the Tom Hanks miniseries about the astronauts? Anyway, one of those movies about all those guys open with him out on his horse and crashing and at night um, and everything and then going and doing that. You know, that's a man. M-A-N. And that's an American. God there, bless him. There's no real treatment for broken ribs. The the, the Wait the, yeah, and this, suffer. This is going to hurt for a while. Try Bad. not to laugh. <laughs> Jack, you've broken six ribs or several ribs. I have. It's uh, unpleasant. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I actually severely bruised and, and partially separated some ribs. I did not break them, thank God. I sneezed and I briefly passed out. I had no idea it would be that no. that painful. I fell to my knees, semi-conscious. After that, by God, I did everything it took to prevent so, sneezes. So th- Thumbs up the nose, forceful <laughs> blow-ins, whatever it took. Yeah, that's from sneezing with... I can't imagine breaking the sound barrier in the very mechanical airplanes of 1947, right? These oh, were yeah. not uh, recumbent seats with heating in them. Touch screens, etc. No, no, that's incredible. Yeah. So I don't know if you've been following the whole uh, SCOTUS nominee process this week, but if you want to know more about the Supreme Court and the ins and outs and that sort of stuff, we're going to talk with Tim Sandifer, Tim the lawyer, who knows about, as much about it as anybody I know. A really fascinating conversation. You will learn a lot. Yeah, not just the dumb questions about Amy Coney Barrett, which have already been answered, and she's going to get confirmed anyway, but just talking about the Supreme Court in general. But coming up in uh, moments, I was reading this piece in the Wall Street Journal about um, the true Michael Brown story. Hmm. I don't know if you remember Michael Brown. Ferguson, Missouri, shot dead, hands up, don't shoot. That didn't actually happen, uh, but it was a big deal. And uh, so there's a documentary coming out that might get... uh, held back by Amazon because it's under content review right now. Oh, it, boy. But, uh, Jack Dorsey of Twitter thinks this, I don't like it because it goes against the narrative. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I think you'll uh, you'll find this fascinating. Armstrong and Getty.
The Armstrong and Getty Show. Because the reality is that the reaction to Trump is also strong, and you see it with schools. There's a lot of schools who are in communities like Washington, D.C., that's doing a good job mm-hmm. and people are following the rules and they are still so risk averse to opening schools in large part because their teachers don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is reaction to some of the politics. If Trump says reopen, then we should stay closed. There's all of this that's coursing through the response to the virus uh, that is a reflection of how it's been politicized. And it's and it's really unfortunate. Well, we've suspected that for a long time. That's uh, David Gregory on CNN saying, yes, some schools are not opening because they don't like Trump. That's the only reason we've been stating that strongly for months. It's clearly true. But the fact that David Gregory is saying it, the fact that Wolf Blitzer is pushing back against Nancy Pelosi, not even trying to come to a. Uh, COVID relief deal. The fact that Jake Tapper is getting in the face of Joe Biden's campaign manager when Joe Biden says it's unconstitutional what the Republicans are doing with the judge. Is there an awakening of I hope. I doubt conscience? It. I doubt it, but I hope. Of common sense if the stakes finally gotten high enough, people think I can't spout the company line anymore. I gotta I gotta speak from my heart. How bad a person are you if you don't open up the schools because you don't like Trump? You're a terrible human being. Honestly, how do you sleep at night? You're deluded. You've you've become a version of you that you would not like. In and America. I'm pretty passionate about this, like a lot of you are, because I I've seen the looks on these kids' faces. I know how sad they are, how miserable they are, and you're freaking not letting them go to school because you don't like Trump. God, I hate you. I really hate you. That's hate speech. Oof. Also, I hate whoever decided that you can't have Christmas lights in. In uh, one area of Sacramento, California, we got a couple of texts on that. Uh, Somebody made a video, I guess, of uh, this is from weeks ago. Governor Newsom enraged after hearing churches singing down in Whoville, uh, making him the Grinch, which is pretty funny. (laughs) I love that. Um, Ready or not, here comes my sled with Max. But we got this text uh, when we were mentioning that they, they banned Christmas lights now. Super liberal, damn near socialist here. I appreciate you listening to the show as a super liberal, damn near socialist. It must be a patient human. Banning Christmas displays is where I step off. I will take up arms against anyone who tells me I can't put up Christmas lights. Amen, my brother. That's pretty crazy. We We can disagree and still be friends on innumerable issues, but let's join together on this one. I have a feeling we'll have a follow up on that tomorrow. Um,. Interested in this documentary that I hope actually comes out when it's supposed to. It's a film called What Killed Michael Brown. There's an op-ed by um, Jason Riley in the Wall Street Journal today. Will Amazon suppress the true Michael Brown story? August was the sixth anniversary of the death of Michael Brown. God, time goes by when you get old. I know it. That's the black teenager who was shot dead by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. The incident and the nationwide coverage it attracted marked the beginning of a period of mass protests against police, which culminated, we hope, after the tragic death of George Floyd in Minneapolis this May. The fashionable explanation for what happened to Brown, Floyd, and others, such as Freddie Gray in 2015 and Philando Castile in 2016, is so-called systemic racism. The activist left and the mainstream media insist that law enforcement targeted these men because they were black, and that if they weren't black, they would still be alive. The truth is more complicated and less politically correct, and it's the subject of an engrossing new documentary scheduled to premiere October 16th 
called What Killed Michael Brown. It's written and narrated by the noted race scholar Shelby Steele. Oh, interesting. And directed by his son Eli Steele. Now you got my attention. Uh, yeah, best-selling books, uh, constant Wall Street Journal op-eds. Fiercely um, independent. Yeah, Emmys, etc., etc., etc. In an interview last week, Mr. Steele, who is based at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, explained the significance of Brown's death and what it tells us about race relations today. Michael Brown represented even more than Trayvon Martin, Freddie Gray, and others, the distortion of truth of reality, he said. Mr. Steele added that when it comes to racial controversies, liberals have developed what he calls a poetic truth, which may be at complete odds with an objective truth, but nevertheless helps them advance a desirable narrative. In the case of Michael Brown, reality was turned on its head. It was almost absolute, Mr. Steele says, the language, he was executed, he was assassinated, hands up, don't shoot. It was a stunning example of poetic truth, of the lies that a society can entertain in pursuit of power. Despite ample forensic evidence, the grand jury reports and the multiple Obama Justice Department investigations clearing the police officer of any wrongdoing, quote, there are blacks today right now in Ferguson, as I point out in the film, who still believe that Michael Brown was killed out of racial animus. That is where race relations are today. The truth has no chance. It's smothered by the politics of victimization. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Fact check. True. And uh, the documentary obviously gets into what actually what happened, what people claimed happened, what actually happened. But it uh, has an optimistic undercurrent to it in that uh, in the documentary, Steele points out all the people, particularly in the neighborhoods, who understand what the real problem is and how they're trying to work to uh, to fix it away from what it says here in this article, the. Uh, super rich liberals and raising money and the ads and this sort of stuff in a lot of the communities. And they quote a whole bunch of people who say we've got a problem with violence in our community and kids who aren't being raised right and don't have any respect for the law. Sure. That's what our problem is. Right. And the people in that community uh, understand what's going on. And that's the optimistic part of the movie. Yeah. So it sounds really, really good. What frustrated me about the whole thing? Well, several things did uh, the the rampant dishonesty, obviously, but. As a uh, a lover of liberty and small government, I did some reading about the situation in Ferguson where it became clear that the PD and the city were one of those towns that financed themselves to a large extent on fines, on rolling a stop side fines, your your lawn isn't right fines, ticky-tack BS fines of the citizens, which is just terrible governance. And there's a lot of it. Your your civil confiscations and civil forfeitures and all that. It's all the cop shops now have to do a certain amount of confiscating money and property to finance themselves because the city fathers have put them in that position, or so the cops may tell you. And so Ferguson had that rampant, which built resentment and more resentment and more resentment among the people there, which to a large extent then culminated in the killing of Michael Brown. So the 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 well was already poisoned by that other stuff. Which I find a really interesting issue, and it, it's in every town across America to a small or great extent. That uneasy, wait a minute, you guys collect on average $1 million in fines every year, and if you don't collect those, your budget is cut, so you have an incentive to find more... Hmm, wait a minute. I'm not sure that's what we want out of our policing. That's a really interesting issue. And that just got swept completely aside in the yelling fake narratives at each other uh, that, that evolved from it. 
Well, I think we've struck upon another really interesting issue based on the text line. People who are outraged over the idea of a county health person saying no Christmas lights. we got people from all over the country who say they're not only willing to donate money to a legal defense fund yeah. for the people who put up the Christmas lights, Christmas lights, they're willing to drive, for instance, in this case, all the way from Texas to drive through that neighborhood and look at the Christmas lights. You do, I'll buy you dinner. This is a, this is a very well-known neighborhood in, in the area, too. I, Mariah Carey, several years back, famously gave this her blessing. Oh, this is a beautiful display, blah, blah. Like, this is a well-known neighborhood that it, it's, well, it's been a Mariah thing for a long Carey time. has blessed it. <laughs> the county has said not this year yeah. because of COVID, and people are outraged and should be. And we're going to stay on this story, I guarantee, for the next couple of days. I think uh, whatever the name is of that county health person, I think you stepped in it. I think you might want to rethink this one because it's about to blow up. This will become a national story. Tucker Carlson will be talking about this. This is going to go huge. Yeah, yeah. And and it is such an incredible. I mean, it's not like he stepped over the line. He vaulted over it like Bob Beeman in 1968. Yeah. He set world records. Yeah, you might how wanna, far over the line this you is. You might want to pull this one back like in the next hour, or it's S- just to explode as a story. Sir, you are a numbskull. I hate to be hurtful, but you have really done something stupid, and here it comes to get you. Yeah. And, and you know what? We're going to help it get you. Armstrong and Getty. Do I know a better commentator on the Supreme Court and the SCOTUS just all the way around than Tim the lawyer, Tim Sandifer? I've been looking forward to this all week long. Tim Sandifer is the vice president for litigation for the Goldwater Institute. He is the author of several excellent books, including more recently, The Ascent of Jacob Bronowski, uh, Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, and one of my all-time favorites, uh, The Right to Earn a Living. Oh, plus the Permission Society, which was inspired, he says, by conversations on this very program. Uh, he is our smart friend. He condescends to speak to us. It's Tim Sandifer. Hello, Tim. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Oh, it's our pleasure. According to your avatar, you're still bearded? Yes, that okay. is right. Nicely trimmed this morning. Fantastic. Good lead question, Jack. <laughs> Would you like to follow that up? Yeah, actually, this is a pretty good lead question. So I'm looking at this poll that was taken right before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, asking the public... How do you feel about the makeup of the court? Because that's what all this fight is about. This is why people get so worked up about it. They're worried about, you know, it's going to move too far this way or that way. So they polled people, and the plurality of Americans felt that the court was just about right politically. 42% said it's about right. A third said too conservative. 23% said too liberal. How would you uh, describe where the court was politically, is politically, and where it will be if Amy Coney Barrett gets on it? The court was moderately conservative, and it will become a little bit more conservative. But the problem is that that kind of question is is basically meaningless unless you're talking about what issue, what legal subject you're talking about. Because, you know, these justices have views about criminal law that differ from their views about civil law or contract law or property rights and things. And those just do not break down into any sensible conservative versus liberal axis. So... The court in general will be more more conservative than it was before, but really what you need to talk about is what specific issues 
uh, will the court change on? Right. It was interesting how you phrased the question, Jack, too, that uh, how will it be uh, now politically as opposed to judicially? And that is... That is a thing that is smeared, whether intentionally or unintentionally, in the media, media that a, a liberal court could conceivably come up with. I mean, a, an activist court could conceivably come up with outcomes that conservatives like politically. And a very conservative judge that thinks, you know, all in all, we ought to stay out of most things might yield an outcome that uh, that liberal voters like. Um, how especially because especially because a lot of conservative judges kind of pride themselves on not using their political views in their judicial decisions. Justice Scalia, very famously so, was of the view that, you know, at, when I take my position as a judge, it's my role to enforce the law as written, even if I disagree with that law. And they, they kind of take it as a badge of pride. So it really isn't fair to, to, to characterize the court in broad political terms for that reason. So uh, it's come up a bunch of times over the last couple of days that she is an originalist. What is an originalist? An originalist is a, a, a person who believes that the Constitution should be interpreted in terms of how it was meant or understood in the 1780s when it was written or in the 1860s when the amendments were passed or what have you, as opposed to the idea that the meaning of the Constitution's text changes somehow over time or that it's or that it is an abstraction like a philosophical abstraction that a judge interprets in in philosophical terms so there are different kinds of originalists and so there are some who think that what's important is what the people individually thought when they sat down to write the constitution in philadelphia in 1787 and then there are others who say no what what matters is what the average person would have believed the Constitution meant in the 1780s and so forth. So there are differences even within these these groups of, of scholars. But in broad terms, an originalist is a person who thinks the Constitution me- means today what it meant when it was written. Is, uh, is a textualist an originalist, or is there a difference? It, there are differences. Uh, okay, I mean, this it depends on who you ask. For example, I do not consider myself an originalist, but I do consider myself a textualist. What I mean by that is that I do think that the text obviously is what matters. When you're reading the Constitution, you have to understand what those words mean, not what you would like them to mean. What they mean now or what they broad. meant at the time, because uh, that can be different, I, can it? That's exactly the problem, exactly the problem. So an originalist says, well, it means what they meant at the time. And a, a textualist does not necessarily think that. So, for instance, Justice Gorsuch, in the recent case about discrimination against uh, people who are married to members of the same sex in the Bostock case, Justice Gorsuch is basically a libertarian. He ruled that the, the, the law does prohibit that kind of discrimination, even though nobody believed that at the time that that law was written. So that is a textualist argument as opposed to an originalist argument. He's not just making it up as he goes along, so he's not like a living constitution guy, but he doesn't think that the meaning of the law is created by the uh, historical fact of how it was written. Would the, you know, not to get too far off on the Second Amendment, but would the uh, the, the, the founders who liked the Second Amendment, would they uh, believe that a person could own their own cannon? Because that would have been the most powerful weapon you could own in the world at the time, I think, as a cannon. You know, I'm reminded uh, of, uh, I had a professor who, who, from Russia when I was in college, and he used to speak about this. He said, he said you know, yeah, I, I have friends in Switzerland 
who really do have tanks in their garages <laughs> because they're all members that are all you know required to serve in the military. It's not a big deal there. Uh, I think that the founding fathers would have thought that you have a right to possess firearms for self-defense, and then when it comes to something like a cannon, they would have said no. Okay. Interesting. Tim Sandifer is on the line from the Goldwater Institute talking about the Supreme Court in general and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, positive, Sean, is now an appropriate time for your, your question? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, just a point that I saw made on Twitter that I thought was interesting, and I, I would love to hear uh, your pushback against it. Um, uh, does an originalist, since the Constitution, and, m- and maybe the, this premise is wrong, only mentions an army and a navy, does that mean that the Air Force doesn't exist to a constitu- or an originalist, and if any rulings came up about that, they would have to say, well, it doesn't exist in the Constitution, therefore no funding for the Air Force or, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, this is this is not at all a stupid question, so congratulations. Congratulations, well, John. I respectfully disagree. No. But go on, Tim. In really, the case of really squirrel is. versus acorn. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the answer to that is, if you are, if you ask the best originalist sneakers out there, and that's people like Randy Barnett, his professor at Georgetown, his answer would be, we're not looking at the specifics of what was written in the Constitution, but at the principles that they wrote into the Constitution. So the fact that they said the armed forces in the Constitution means that whatever is, in, is designed as an armed force falls within what the Constitution was originally meant at the time. That, and maybe that's a persuasive argument. I actually don't think it's a persuasive argument for very sophisticated reasons we probably don't have to get, uh, get into. I, do, I think the Constitution clearly gives Congress the authority to create an Air Force, but not because that was in the minds of anybody in the 1780s. Okay. Does the Constitution, and this is more about Twitter than you, Sean, does the Constitution actually specifically mention the Army and Navy at all? Or just armed forces? Yes, it's a, it does. No, it says Army and Navy in, some, in one place, and it says uh, armed forces in another. Okay, mm. excellent. The unconstitutional Air Force. I'll does it mention uh, <laughs> Elvis Costello's fabulous uh, album, Armed Forces, at all? That's in, that's in the, the, the Article 12. <laughs> so that's what I thought. Let's get to where the rubber meets the road or the sensible flats meet the, uh, the black robe in this case. Mm-hmm. Why has the Supreme Court become such a major part of American life in a way that it wasn't as much in the past. Why is everybody so fevered about it? The short answer is abortion. The long answer is the New Deal from the 1930s. So the, what ha, all of this is about the politics of abortion because of the Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade in the 1970s. And since that decision, there's been a concentrated effort to get that decision overturned. And part of that has been to elect presidents who are going to nominate Supreme Court justices who believe that the Roe decision was wrongly decided. Now, of course, if Roe were overruled today, it would not ban abortion in the United States. It would mean that it was up to state Supreme Courts to decide whether their state constitutions protect abortion rights. And several states already have done so. California, uh, Kansas, all sorts of states have issued decisions saying it doesn't matter what happens at the U.S. Supreme Court. Abortion is a protected right at the state level. So that's the easy answer. But the long-term answer is that ever since the 1930s, Congress has been given such expansive powers, powers that the Constitution does not contemplate that it's become a really important priority to make sure that nobody gets on the Supreme Court who starts to say, wait a minute, all this stuff that the federal government has gotten itself into, and state governments also, in the past 80 years or so, there's no constitutional foundation for that. And it really conflicts with a lot of in the Constitution, so maybe we should rethink that. 
that would be very dangerous to lots and lots of bureaucrats and to lots and lots of people who get paid for not working from the federal government and, and state governments. So they, it's very important that they prevent that from ever happening. So that's the, the and, and, you know, what has happened then is Congress passes these incredibly broad, incredibly vague laws, which then courts have to go in and figure out what they mean. So that means it's very important to control what goes on in the court. Isn't that a lot of it? I mean, that's what Senator Ben Sass keeps complaining about Congress not doing their job. They leave it so open-ended, and they want the court to deal with it so that they don't have to. That's exactly right, and and he's totally right about that. And, of course, Congress has huge incentives to do that, right? Pass incredibly vague laws. That, that look like a good thing, and then you can go home to your constituents and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm a great guy, I did this, uh, I passed this great law, but it's so vaguely worded that there's no real downside at first. And then gradually, then it's the court's responsibility to figure out what these laws mean. And the court starts saying, well, gosh, this is a very good law. Well, by that time, you've passed the buck. By that time, you've already been reelected to Congress, so you don't have to worry about it. And if anything goes wrong, you can blame the judges. I have a, a final question, but first, uh, Tim, a glimpse into our lives. We got the, we were talking about Ben Sass a great deal. We quoted him yesterday. Got this uh, note from Jerry. Ha ha! You said Ben's ass. Thank you, Jerry, for that contribution. <laughs> now, see, now, now, see, now, see, that is not a textualist interpretation. Of the <laughs> All right, here is my closing two-headed monster of a question. What is the worst Supreme Court decision that has not been overturned? Uh, you can deal with that first if you like. That would be Jones and Laughlin Steel versus National Labor Relations Board, which is a 1937 case that basically said that every single employment contract in the country can be regulated by the federal government. Ugh. And and secondly, did you watch any of the uh, confirmation hearing stuff yesterday? Oh, God, no. Actually, I, I watched about 30 seconds of it, but the problem is it's so horrible to watch when you are a lawyer and you care about these things because it's like watching a television channel that's devoted to nothing but filming children fighting at a school playground (laughs) no 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 that's not right because it would be more like children who refuse to go to school fighting on a playground right it's like watching csi with an actual cop they just spend the entire thing saying, oh, God. Well, that I love how they made a big deal about the fact that, that, that she didn't have any notes on the desk in front of her. Like, what notes do you need to answer questions that stupid? Or questions that aren't even questions, these two- or three-minute-long monologues that these senators are giving that aren't even questions that have nothing to do with her. Well, it's clear you didn't watch yesterday. They got a half hour each, and some of the guys just droned on for an entire half hour and didn't even acknowledge the presence of the, the young woman there at the uh, the. the table so hey before we, before we run out of time do i remember correctly that you don't have a problem with uh uh just a simple majority for the senate to put supreme court justices on you said it's not in the constitution so you don't have a problem with it am i right about that do i remember that, that? that's exactly yes that's right and in fact i i'm of the view that supreme court nominations ought to be more politicized than they are i think it's a shame that nominees are coached never to answer substantive questions about their views of the law and that we then place these people on the court when, without really a clear idea of what they in view the Constitution as meaning. And I, and I think it would be healthier for our society if we had much more lengthy and more political debates over who gets put on the court and who doesn't. Interesting. So I, don't, just, I don't know how that would happen. Just but. understand, you're not saying, how would you decide this case more on w- w- what's your view of the Constitution, what's your philosophy, that sort of thing? 
I would even ask a justice or a nominee, what do you think that such and such a case ought to be overruled? What do you think about this legal precedent? I absolutely would do that. Yeah, and these are people who are going to have life tenure on the Supreme Court of the United States. We should know what their views are of the Constitution. And expanding the Supreme Court, how do you feel about going from 9 to 11 or 13 or whatever? Well, I think there, there's... There's no constitutional reason why you can't do it in terms of, like, the text, but it's a really bad idea. That's, that really is a, the, a road you go down that ultimately destroys the constitutional system and turns everything into politics. And if you think everything ought to be politics, then, you're, you know, you have no reason to cherish the Constitution. And the only reason to expand, the, to pack the court, to expand the con- con- court and that sort of thing, is because your program cannot be justified in constitutional terms. And so you're saying basically, well, I've invented a new place, I'm going to throw out the rule book. And that's, that's a really bad idea. Tim, the lawyer, Sandifer, vice president for litigation, the Goldwater Institute. Uh, Tim, always enlightening. Thanks a million for the time. We'll talk again soon. Looking forward to it, guys. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I'm not a fan of court packing, but I'm not. I don't want to get off on that whole issue. All right, there uh, ends any discussion of court packing, as far as I'm concerned. You think everybody knows where everybody stands? Okay, even the people who say they're not going to say where they stand. Uh, this is my favorite tweet of the day, and we were watching the TV with uh, a bunch of ancient senators on there, and there's a bunch of them that are oh, just yeah. a, a million years old. There are several that are 80-plus. On this committee, somebody who calls himself Tiny Baby tweeted, Each state should have an allocation of 100 years of age for their senators. You can send two 50-year-olds if you want, but if you want to send Diane Feinstein to the Senate, you got to send a 13-year-old too. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, my gosh. She's 87. I know. I see nothing wrong with that. No. Even if you made it 120 years with DiFi, you'd have to have a 33-year-old. Amazing. Woof. And now final thoughts with Armstrong and Spaghetti. (laughs) You didn't didn't give us six minutes for final thoughts again, did you, today? Because I'm going to really stretch if you did. Really milk it. Here's your host for final thoughts, Joe Getty. Hey, I say we get a final thought from everybody on the crew to put a nice bow on the show. Uh, First of all, filling in for Michelangelo ably behind the board, it's executive producer Mike Hanson. Mike? Hey, sold a car this summer. Uh, made a couple bucks, and I got a letter uh, two days ago that said I owed $16,000 for some sort of accident that occurred. What? Uh, not happy with the collection agency, but very happy with the insurance company that took care of this catastrophe. Excellent. Wow, I need to hear more about that. How does that happen? Yeah, well, his name must still be somewhere. Oh, car. Positive Sean, our producer, has a final thought for us. Sean? Yeah, I had an experience that will probably be the closest I ever get to actually experiencing time travel. I swore it was Tuesday until like two hours ago. And I realized it was, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm one day closer to Friday, everybody. Oh, that's so much better than the opposite. Oh, yeah. You want to time travel in the right direction. Exactly. Jack, a final thought to share? So the story with Hunter Biden's emails. So when you drop off your laptop to get work done or your computer, do they just go through everything on everybody's computer to see what's there for fun? 
At How else would they figure it out? Yeah, what did go on there? Anyway, they came across a bunch of emails that might have some political implications and a 12-minute sex video of Hunter Biden smoking crack with some rando uh, woman. Or stripper or something. That's wild. Yeah, my final thought is I'd like to retract several things I said on the show today. I said, for instance, that I thought it was great and really encouraging that a bunch of lefty journalists were, acting, were asking difficult probing questions of uh, lefty politicians. And the idea of being uh, intellectually independent and calling your side for its own fouls and the rest of it, that's kind of our thing. And it wouldn't help our brand if Wolf Blitzer is doing the same thing. So please, go back to partisan nonsense. Hey, we're going to stay on this story about them uh, canceling Christmas lights in one county in California. Because if we have to raise money for lawyers, we will. Armstrong and Getty wrapping up another grueling four-hour workday. This will not stand. So many people to thank so little time. Go to armstrongandgetty.com. Uh, if you are a corrupt California voter, we'll have around noon Pacific today our... Uh, our podcast on the idiotic propositions. Uh, everybody else, we have all sorts of great links for you. The articles we talked about, you can email us, mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. See you tomorrow. God bless America. You having a good time? Okay, I, I did not say okay. that. I've sat here for over three hours and 15 minutes. <laughs> that sucks. If you wish to leave, you may. Let me just say how very, very dismaying and disappointing. Not uh, good. And just change the channel from this mesmerizing horror show. We'll be better tomorrow than we were today. Then we heard the words. It's over for me. Adios, mofo. Okay, so we're, we're, you're, we're dismissed, is that correct? Do you want to rephrase uh, what you're doing? I've been judging one particular curve for the past eight uh, months. Is it the gentle curve of my buttocks? It's on the few. What? what? Yeah, no, where'd that come from? The first segment. Armstrong and Getty.